electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Homes.com knows that when it comes to home shopping, it's never just about the house or condo. It's about the home. And what makes a home is more than just the house or property. It's the location and neighborhood. If you have kids, it's also schools, nearby parks, and transportation options. That's why Homes.com goes above and beyond to bring home shoppers the in-depth information they need to find the right home. And when I say in-depth, I'm talking deep. Each listing features comprehensive information about the neighborhood, complete with a video guide. They also have details about local schools with test scores, state rankings, and student-to-teacher ratio. They even have an agent directory with the sales history of each agent. So when it comes to finding a home, not just a house, this is everything you need to know, all in one place. Homes.com. We've done your homework. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Kramer, welcome to a special edition, a West Coast edition of Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. Other people want to make friends? Man, I'm just trying to save you some money. My job is not just to entertain, but to educate, to teach you, and to try to put this market in context, because I know it's awful. Call me at 1-800-743-CNBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. On a day like today, where the Dow plunged 638 points... S&P plummeted 2.38%. NASDAQ nosedive 2.75%. All I can say is, come on, give us a reason why you're selling, will you? Did you borrow too much money and the margin butchers are booting you out to get the cash? Are you a hedge fund manager whose investors want their money back? A redemption? Maybe you just can't take it anymore, and that's why you're selling. I always say people sell stocks for many reasons, but the only one, only reason they buy is to make money. Right now, the former camp is a lot more powerful than the sell, latter. Sell, 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 buy, buy, buy. Now, after spending all week talking to the very same kinds of companies that led this horrendous market down, I got some good news and some bad news. Actually, though, it's the same news. The average Silicon Valley CEO I speak to, and I've probably spoken to two dozen this week, when asked about their plummeting stocks, say simply, why are you judging us on a quarter when we have such a positive long-term story? Now, that is a true statement. But the problem is the owners aren't patient. And if they keep buying on the way down, unless they are super rich, they will run out of money. It's easy for millionaire CEOs to talk about thinking long term. Regular investors can't afford to wait for the business to turn, though. In the end, people take the losses personally, or in many cases, they don't take the losses because they're hoping for the stocks to make a comeback. Unfortunately, that rarely happens, people. And even if it does, it probably takes much longer than you can stand. So what's the solution to this problem? Oh, but I got lose sleep every night about this because I know how awful this market is. I wish I had an easy solution. But some days nothing works. Days like today, where even the oils went down. Now, we had themeless trading. 
Some stocks were up, most stocks were down, with the winners almost totally random and arbitrary today. What is going on? I think we're in a period of the great readjustment, where investors are frantically trying to figure out what to pay for companies that aren't making that much money now, but may make a lot of money in the future. At the same time, they try to revalue companies that are making money now, but may make less money in the future because rates keep rising. Then, of course, there are the consistent companies that can make good money no matter what. But finding those is a treasure hunt game, and there's not enough treasure out there. And when you find it, the stocks are usually too expensive. For most of the last 12 years, we haven't had to navigate this kind of river. We've had a straight run. Smooth run to higher and higher prices. It was placid. It was seamless. It was sweet. Most important, it was easy. Now we're plunging along Class 5 rapids, and we're glad we have helmets because people falling out of the raft, bouncing off rocks, holding on for dear life, you need a helmet. Like Class 5 rapids, you don't know what's going to throw you. It's just not possible to see. So I want to dramatize for effect by just looking at one sector. I could have picked 20 of them. I want you to take a look at the stock Block. That's the company formerly known as Square. Until recently, the stock was a beautiful market darling that could do no wrong, including the purchase of a giant buy-now-pay-later company. And that was called Afterpay. Uh, That was an announced $29 billion deal last August. The actual purchase price was lower because it was an all-stock deal and Block shares collapsed between when the deal was announced and when it was closed. But at the time, at the time it was announced, it was hailed as like just a brilliant deal. And the stock roared just on the possibility of an acquisition in that red-hot buy-now-pay-later area. So this thing went from $200 last June to above $280 in August. We were told younger people love the concept of buy-now-pay-later, so we should buy the stock. But as interest rates rise, we're now seeing the cracks in that credit edifice. You know the cliché joke, buy-now-pay-never. The old square had been very adept at letting small businesses borrow money against the receipts because Square itself was processing those transactions. But buy now, pay later doesn't have that kind of collateral. Next thing you know, the market turns on the fintech stocks and Block takes a beating. If this thing was down another 9% today for 76, it's down 76 bucks. So much for a brilliant acquisition. But I got really bad news for you. Nothing happened to Block today. Nothing. And it went down that much. Affirm. Another buy now, pay later operation. We just had a max leverage in the CEO. It's seen its stock go from 168 at the peak last November to $21 in changer, down another 9% today. Not long ago, CEO Max told us that his default rate is incredibly low. He said he can repackage those loans and sell them with ease. The Wall Street Journal just reported that 3.7% of a firm's loans are at least 30 days overdue, up from only 1.4% a year ago. Now, that's freaking people out. For good reason, even as the, it's not necessarily all that different from the reassurance Max gave us. But the market is saying, so what? There's credit risk? I didn't think there was credit risk. Get me the hell out of this thing. Last fall, we spoke to Dan Schulman, the CEO of PayPal, when he came to New York. His stock had fallen from the 180s down from the 300s a few months before. He seemed exasperated. The stocks like a firm and square were, their stocks were doing much better than him. So what did he do? He claimed proudly that PayPal was the biggest player in buy now, pay later. Well, Shulman sure got his wish, but it's a monkey's paw situation because Wall Street now hates buy now, pay later. One reason PayPal stock has plunged another $100 since that interview. Now, I don't want to pick on any one particular group because so many things are crumbling here. I'm just trying to show you how when you buy stocks of companies that are expensive with no dividend protection, you know, low interest rate environment, you're going to keep getting blasted until the Fed is finished raising rates. 
probably not anytime soon. Tightening cycle just started. The market is littered with stocks like this. We have Uber on today. Oh, that's a great company. I know you use it all the time. Stock's been cut in half just in the last year. Why? A year ago, wouldn't be up on the same metrics. This stock would have doubled. Now it's cut in half. A year ago, it was in style in the Wall Street fashion zone, and now it's not. I think it will be the big winner in the group. But do you have enough money to get to that promised land where it wins? You have to if you're going to own it. Two of the companies out here that are hailed as huge success stories. Airbnb, love it. DoorDash, use it. They plummeted six and six and, and a half and seven percent today, respectively. Why? No reason at all. They just happen to be growth stocks that have nothing to fall back on. No dividends, no buybacks, just a chance to make big money someday in the future. Winning businesses. But losing stocks. Sell, 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 sell. No one who owns these stocks seems to care about the out years now. It's much easier to believe that the bright future when you got a bright present. And we don't have that anymore. So what's the end game here? As I've said over and over again, you want to own companies that make real things, do real stuff, turn a profit in the process with relatively cheap stocks and good dividends buybacks. That group has held up much better. It's losing money, but it's held up. Believe me, I know there are some terrific tech companies that fit those parameters. They're all damn big today. But there are two major differences. One is that many of the stocks I own for the CBC Investing Club have a defined downside because of that dividend and their lack of sensitivity to interest rates. Oh, sure, they can overshoot it. But we know they're going to get through. The other reason, they're mature companies that have gotten through recessions before and come out the other side even stronger. They've got the culture for it. They're seasoned. Many of the companies that have come public in the last few years have never seen anything like this. And you know what? It shows. If your stock doesn't have these stalwart qualifications, there's a huge problem. I cannot tell you where the share price stops. I don't know. There seems to be no companies willing to acquire most of the disappointers because the market will look askance at the acquirer. That means there's not a lot of value yet. If interest rates stop going up, you could be fine. But do you really want to be your own share, say, in a company that's hostage to the slings and arrows of the bond market at the beginning of a tightening cycle? Bottom line, there are hundreds, hundreds of stocks that fit the depiction of what I like. But there are thousands, thousands of stocks that fit the depiction of what I don't like. If you own the tangible stocks I've been highlighting, you have an opportunity to buy more into weakness. If you're stuck with the conceptual stocks that I've worn you away from, well, you have a crisis. You know which I prefer. Let's go to Ryan in Texas. Ryan. Jim, big fan, man. Thanks for taking my call. Thank you. Thank Um, you for calling in. Uh, questions about Sentinel One. I know you've had Tomer on the show a couple times, and then they got big competitors like CrowdStrike. And I know you've you've talked to George a few times. Give me your take on Sentinel One. Is it ever is it ever going to be a CrowdStrike type uh, stock? Look, and, uh, Sentinel. Uh, and thank you for the question. Sentinel One. It's a good company, but it's up against CrowdStrike and it's up against Palo Alto Networks. Those are really, really great companies with a good, a good panoply of businesses. And that just may be too tough right now. It just may be too tough. All right, listen, if you, I know this was a really tough day, okay? And I'm trying to be plaintive. I'm trying not to fly off the handle. But you've got to know that if you own tangible stocks, you do have an opportunity to buy more into weakness and have more chance of getting that money back. If you have the conceptual stocks, on the other hand, then I think you are indeed in some trouble. And I'm not sure when that trouble ends. On Mad Money tonight, is innovation alive and well in the Bay Area? And what is it worth? I'm getting a read on e-commerce trends and transformative tech from a company in the know. I've got the CEO of Creative Powerhouse, Adobe. Then after announcing a strategic partnership with self-driving company Waymo, 
I'm sitting down with the CEO of Uber to talk about innovation and the future for the rideshare company, which I think is going to be the big winner. And Splunked, it's on a mission to manage big data, but can it manage all that Wall Street's throwing at the tech cohort that I just described? I'm going to talk to the company's top brass. So stay with Kramer, coming to you from San Francisco. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at cnbc.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. Fact. Running a business is not getting easier on your wallet. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. Also a fact, smart businesses are reducing costs and headaches by graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. Accessed from anywhere. You can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. See how you'll profit with NetSuite, and then you can think of all the ways you could be spending the money you save. Company retreat in Malibu, anyone? By popular demand, NetSuite is offering a -a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to NetSuite.com to start saving. When you're hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging to connect with candidates faster. Plus, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visible visibility at indeed.com slash mad money. Just go to indeed.com slash mad money right now and support this show by saying you heard about indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash mad money. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need indeed. To find value in a silicon sector severed from success, investors will have to get creative. Fresh off earnings. What picture does Adobe's quarter paint for your portfolio? After seven months of carnage, what do I do with the better-run software stories like Adobe? This digital media and e-commerce facilitator is a major player in the digitization game. But unlike so many others, Adobe's an established company with real earnings and maybe even a justifiable valuation. Right now, the company's in its quiet period because it reports next Thursday. But while we're out here in the Bay Area, I wanted to check in with them. They're that good. This feels like a very tricky environment for the digitizers, even the pros. Earlier today, we got a chance to speak to Shantanu Narayan. And Shantanu is the chairman and CEO of Adobe. And I want you to look at this because this is one of those that does make something and does produce great revenue, great earnings. 
Sean, I got to tell you, you could be a breath of fresh air. A lot of people have been saying, ah, oh, there's not much happening out here. You are a person of innovation and creativity. Please give me some hope that there are new things that are occurring right now in Adobe that we will soon learn about that will really excite us. Well, Jim, first, it's great to be back on oh, the show, and person. it's great to be back in person. Yeah, I mean, how cool is big. this? It's big. It's been a long time, and uh, innovation is alive and well at Adobe. And, you know, you talk about so many different things that I'm sure we'll touch on. What's happening with uh, creativity right. and everybody still wanting to use different media types and devices to communicate their ideas. What's happening with, uh, you know, people trying to power digital businesses, yeah. uh, you know, and the metaverse. And so there is just so much that's happening in tech. I think the sentiment has changed a little bit where, you know, if the sentiment was all about these explosive tech businesses that were not necessarily profitable. Right. And I think it's changed a little bit to be, you know. positive longer term. Exactly. Absolutely. Exactly. Well, look, uh, tomorrow the CPI comes out. And I used to care passionately about the CPI. But when I break out the components, it's not very realistic. What seems realistic is the Adobe digital price index, because that's how people shop. And I've noticed some good trends that I wish the Federal Reserve would look at. And I'm going to give you the floor because just got the new news right here. Did you not? Well, you know, I think what people don't recognize is, first, the fact that digital wasn't part of the consumer price index. I mean, it's really crazy to think about how, you know, we were just measuring traditional as opposed to, you know, modern ways of people engaging and doing commerce. I think if you look at the data, you have to really parse it and say what's happening macro uh, economic situation and what's happening as it relates to the secular trend in digital. And we spent a billion dollars more in digital than we did just the previous month. And so nothing's about the year. Exactly. So nothing's going to change as it relates to people saying, I want to do digital engagement. I want to perhaps buy digitally, pick up physically and, you know, the multi-channel thing. And then you have to look at it and say, what's happening category by category? And I think, you know, when you look at the total expense, uh, in addition to the macroeconomic, where there may be a little bit more concern, what's happened is actually you're seeing some price decreases yep. in elements like electronics or things right. that are happening with games. Groceries is a little bit still where inflation is right. doing it. But if you put that together still, that trend is just, you know, going to continue. Uh, Deflationary. In the Fed has to be thinking about this, maybe because your index is so exacting and breaks down so much better than CPI, by the way. It, will, it is so much more rigorous. Let's hope. Now, another deflationary aspect, but that's somebody I think about. It. Today's the first day that Facebook is not Facebook. It's Meta. And I know that you're in partnership with, with Meta. And I am such a huge believer in the Metaverse. And pe- will you please help me? A lot of people think that I've drunk some sort of Kool-Aid. I think I've come up with a, with a deflationary way to shop and learn. Well, I think you have to differentiate between what the terms are being used And, you know, are people going to do more things virtually that they previously did physically? And that's inevitable. And so, you know, whether it's called the metaverse, whether it's called virtual environments, the reality is that, you know, more and more things that were done physical world, we're going to all engage in virtually. And I think gaming was a really great example of what happened where, you know, when you talk about multiplayer games and the world that's happened, it's clearly exploded. Right. And I think the same thing will happen. If you're a small and medium business today, you have to have a physical presence in one of these virtual worlds. If you're trying to do travel or entertainment or education, you have to look at the potential of what you can do with 3D worlds. And I think Adobe's role is really saying, it's hard creating those environments 
and where we are innovating a lot with Meta and with other companies is saying if you're a large company, you better have a brand there and you better start to explore if you're Coke or if you're, you know, uh, a, a company like Nike, what sure. is your physical presence in these worlds? And if you're a small and medium business, how can you do commerce? And the right. commerce experience is also going to be far more compelling in the metaverse. Right. And so, you know, I think people may be caught up a little bit by what that term is, mm -hmm. but the relentless move towards doing things virtually is not going to change. Well, one of the things you taught me is, look at the eighth graders. What are they going to do? Look at the 10th graders. They are going to be more comfortable in the metaverse than they are going to be in a, in a traditional mall. And we've got to, it's like Bob Dylan, but it's, you know, the times are changing. Yeah. And uh, someone like me has to realize that my view is not uh, as relevant as it used to be versus the eighth graders, versus the, versus the 22 year olds who are thinking about starting a business. They know Adobe. They know they can do a business with Adobe. And it's a remarkable thing. And I, sometimes I wish that our viewers understood that the way people create is on Adobe. But I'm lucky to have kids who do it. It doesn't matter what industry you're in today, no. Jim. Uh, I was with the CEO of a major automotive manufacturer this morning. And he was talking about what it's going to take to attract that next generation of customers. And mm -hmm. everything starts with a phone and everything's going to be right. digital. So even in automotive, when you talk about the electrification of cars and you talk about the customer engagement. So I think to your point, the eighth graders are going to wake up saying, if everything's not digital and if I'm not going to engage with that and create with that and learn from that, I'm just going to be behind. So uh, it, it's amazing. And you see these kids and they just pick it up without any preconceived notions. Well, then how does someone as great, how do the people at Home Depot, and I've known them and I think they're fabulous, understand they need to ally with you to get to the next level? I think Adobe really pioneered what we are calling customer experience management. Right. And, you know, uh, supply chain was automated, finance was automated. Nobody had said, why aren't you bringing technology to bear in the area of marketing? And I think that's what Adobe pioneered. And so in many ways, what Home Depot is saying is, we're seeing this confluence of the physical world and the virtual world. But we have to have this customer data platform that allows us to really engage with every customer in a personalized way. So we're thrilled to be working with Home Depot, with Nike, with Verizon, and with all the financial institutions to make that a reality. Well, look, you make our lives easier because we all are on the go. We're not, we don't necessarily want to go to the Big Orange as much as I like their places. And you're, you're the one who's the enabler. I want people to know that that's what Adobe is, the enabler of the next generation of e-commerce, as you always are. I want to thank Shantanu Ryan. He's the chairman and CEO of Adobe. You know, I've liked him. $66 was where I got on board. I wish I had done 35 but you did that switch, and I, I didn't really understand it until you explained it to me. Man, let me back into the break. Coming up. Should this stock give you some fuel for thought? Kramer hails a sit-down with the Uber CEO, next. You seek the key, but first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month 
like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Recession fears loom. And pain at the pump is flashing a yellow light from Main Street to Wall Street. Is it time to hitch a ride with this stock? Or should investors get off the road? been a brutal period to own the ride-sharing stocks, Uber down 60% from its highs last year, because Wall Street has no patience for companies with no earnings, even if they have good cash flow. But a funny thing happened last month. While Lyft reported a truly ugly quarter, Uber turned in a much better set of numbers the next day. More important, management said they plan to significantly cut spending while aiming for more free cash flow, which you know we like, because Wall Street does want to see it. Just yesterday, Barclays published a report where they argued that Uber could benefit massively from recession because it would relieve the driver shortage and it would also make it impossible for small rivals to raise money. Hey, maybe it's game, set, match. I think it's a very intriguing thesis. So let's check in with Dara Kozrashahi, and Dara's the CEO of Uber to get a better sense of where his company's headed. Dara, welcome back to Bad Money. Thank you. It's been a long time. It's great to be here. And you look good, and I'm so thrilled. Thank you. So I ride, you know, I take my Uber last night because I don't know anything other than take Uber. Thank you. And I say, you know what, Dara won. I'm going to tell Dara that he run. But you know what? Winning these days, even in your excellent note, Dara, which you wrote, and I know all people talked about was like, you know, like freeze or whatever. It, you talk about winning. And I'm just not sure what winning is in a market where you also say that you, uh, that you have to entrust the shareholders and trust you. And the shareholders, you think, want you to cut back. I don't know. Tell me what to do as a business person. What are you saying? What are you thinking? Well, it's, it's a complicated world, and there's a lot of uncertainty out there. And I think that you can't win if you're one-dimensional. And, and what we see, we think investors want is strong top-line growth, at the same time strong and expanding profit margins, and free cash flow growth. And that's essentially what we think we can deliver. When you look at our last quarter, top-line grew by 39%. Our adjusted EBITDA improved by over 500 million. Uh, we guided to even improved uh, EBITDA of 240 and 270 million. Uh, and we have very clearly said that we are going to be free cash flow profitable this year. And I think that we can continue to deliver really strong top line growth. We set targets of 2024, top line growth, gross bookings 22 to 25 percent, a $5 billion EBITDA target. And we've said generally free cash flow will trail EBITDA by a billion dollars, which would suggest free cash flow of almost $2 a share if we hit those 2024 targets. Okay. We think that'll be a win. No, I think you can do it. Uh, but, but then I come back and say, what were these great projects that you might have had? Did you have other things in mind? Uh, or is the goal just to say, OK, we've got to do this now. Wall Street says we have to do it because I know you as a big think guy. And if you decide, listen, I'm going to own trucking, you could own trucking. But maybe that costs too much right now. Maybe the market's just not letting you do some really creative things. Well, I think the good news for us is we have so many growth drivers that we're able to pull back on the margin. But we can keep pushing on the strategy. So we will pull back on the marginal marketing dollar that doesn't quite have the return uh, that we might want it or an incentive dollar. We're going to be tougher in terms of headcount growth. Now, are we going to grow our uh, U4B uh, sales headcount? Absolutely. Are we going to keep growing our sales headcount at Uber Freight, which is growing at really high rates? Absolutely. 
but we're going to be more careful in terms of where we invest. And because we're the global player, we're the scale player, and we're diversified, we can have both durable top line and bottom line growth. I know you can, and I agree with all of that. But let me give you, let me tell you devil's advocate. Sure. I asked my, my team today, I said, does anyone know about this Uber One? The younger people say, yeah, I'm, of course I'm an Uber One. I'm not an Uber One. Why? I am in an Uber every day. I didn't know you had Uber One. I mean, now we got to, you know, that's just a, I, now that I know it, I'm, I'm signing up. But, well, I mean, that's not how it should be taught. I mean, we should all hear about it. Well, I do think that that's, that's something I'll take to the Uber One crew generally. Remember that Uber One is, we're pretty young in terms of the launch of Uber One. And the magic of Uber One is it gives you benefits in terms of delivery. It similarly prices our delivery uh, competition. But you get 5% off rides, which, you know, are more expensive. That 5% can save you a lot of money. And really what, we, what we're doing is we get people who use Uber, we get people who use Uber Eats, and then we upsell Uber One from Uber and Uber Eats as well. So we will get to you, Jim, one of these days. Right, now, I'll make sure much, we do. I, I already got there. How much <laughs> of your game is a waiting game in that we will have uh, cars with no drivers, and I can imagine that the margins there would be extraordinary for you? Well, I do think that uh, when we think about driverless, we're very much excited about the future. And, and really, the way I think about it, Jim, is any driver who's safe in a vehicle, who's a great driver, who, uh, who provides uh, a great customer service, we want them in our network. Right. And whether they're a human driver or a taxi cab yeah. or a driverless driver, and we want them in our network both in rideshare, in delivery, and in trucking as well. So you might have seen, actually, the announcement that we made with Waymo Via, yes, that's uh, which is up. building driverless trucks. And it's, it's a deep technical integration. Uh, a buyer of a, uh, of a Waymo truck essentially will have the software to be able to, in an integrated way, get that truck onto the Uber Freight uh, brokerage network to be able to realize value and money right away. We think those are the kinds of win-win-wins that we see as it relates I've, to self I started that industry. That may be your most lucrative if you get it done. Now, the goalpost did move. You didn't talk about whether it was fair or not, which I really like, because it's, it's, it's irrelevant. It's, it's a reality. But at the same time, uh, you didn't get in to, to be a cutter. You didn't get in to be able to, to, to make it so young, great ideas don't get magic. It, it, can it be fun for you? You can do whatever you want in life. I Why do this? Well, uh, we do it because of the impact that Uber is having on the world. Right, is we have four and a half million earners earning on the platform. And for perspective, Jim, just this year, we've added a million new drivers onto our platform. The scale in which we operate and how important we are, you were talking about getting to the hotel and right. making your life a little bit easier in terms of anywhere you want to go in your city, anything you want to get in your city, and then empowering local merchants to be able to have that relationship with you uh, is is powerful. Well, to me, you've gone, a lot of people, you know, the pandemic, not, but those things mean nothing to me. What I know is that if your driver costs would come down, a recession would do that, your margins would expand, and you might be the ultimate stock in a slowdown because people still want to do things. We know that. The consumer has money. I mean, do you think about that, that the raising, the increase in supply of drivers is a great thing for you? We do think about that. Obviously, we're not rooting for a recession, right? right. The business is growing right. at really high rates right now. We're growing top line and bottom line. And I think what makes Uber different is that we're a truly durable company. We have mobility. So when markets reopen, the mobility business is absolutely booming, as we're seeing now. We have delivery. If it closes down, we the delivery business booms as well. So we're an all-weather company in those aspects. And you're absolutely right in that we are recession resistant, right. in that we don't have big fixed costs. 
and our cost of supply essentially adjusts up and down. In good economies, uh, cost of supply goes up as it is now, and that's great because driver earnings are elevated. In more poor economies, driver earnings come down, but the alternatives are not as plentiful as well, and fast, flexible work opportunities are welcome. But things are coming back. I mean, you're, you're, you're starting to get some big lift in some cities. Uh, the coast doing well, right? But- Business is booming. We Boom. talked about we talked about uh, actually May gross bookings and trips being higher than April, which was already strong. The delivery business is staying strong, and more and more drivers are coming into our platform than than ever. We talked about April number of new driver signups was up 120 percent in May. It's up 145 percent on a year-on-year basis. Earnings are elevated, and right. and drivers are speaking with their feet on the pedal. Well, so it should speak. matter, but we have a terrible market, but we it will do. matter one day. Now, you bought Drizzly, $1.1 billion, uh, therefore you literally own the market for delivery of liquor because it's too hard. I know these laws. It's really amazing. What's been the return on Drizzly? Uh, the return has been very strong. Right. That team, they are the number one player in terms of being a pure uh, play alcohol delivery to your home. Right. We're looking at categories, fast and frequent, food, grocery, uh, alcohol, pharmacy, alcohol is really high margin. Right. And I think in this mar- market, margins are even more important. The advertising business in alcohol is huge and the stickiness that we see. And by the way, you're talking about Uber One. You get discounts on your Drizzly orders if you're an Uber One member. Oh, I know what I have to do. Now, speaking of return on investment, uh, let's talk about return on real investment. What you're doing with Ukraine. Yes. This is real investment. You and I both know that. I want you to tell people what you decide. This is today's news, and I think it's, it gets more momentum going if you, if you tell people what you're up to. Absolutely. So th- this is actually an idea that came from our teams, engineers, et cetera. Uh, and we've been working with the U.N. food program, and the U.N. food program needs to get food out uh, in Ukraine, but doesn't want to in, like, big trucks, et cetera, that can be easily targeted. So they want to get the food out in cars, vans, et cetera. And the amazing idea that our teams had is, why don't we build essentially a private label Uber for the U.N. World Food Program? And so uh, they essentially onboard their own vehicles. They have all the access to the dispatch. They can see when vehicles are showing up. They use a pin system to identify the right vehicles. And they are getting tons of food out in, and expanding, hopefully, into five clever cities in Clever way to save lives. Sometimes you have to be clever. It's about impact, Jim. We want to have impact on the world. Well, you do it. Okay, that's Dara Kosmosari. And Dara is the CEO, of course, is Uber. Small introduction because everybody knows Dara. Mad Money's back in for break. Thank you, sir. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Coming on, among the junk turn to splunk? Does a recent revenue rally mean this company's bucking the sector's sour trends? Find out next. these unprofitable software stories this environment. But just because they're tough to own now doesn't mean they won't be tough to own forever. Take Splunk, the data analytics and cybersecurity software company that recently brought in a new CEO, Gary Steele, formerly of Proofpoint. We always love Gary and we love Proofpoint. That was sold to a private equity firm last year. Now, this one has been hammered since the peak last November. But two weeks ago, Splunk reported a clean beat and raised quarter. Since then, the stock's up a quick 10 bucks and up more than 20% from its May lows. That said, it's still down nearly 20 bucks from where it was trading at the end of April. Like I said at the top of the show, that's just the way it's been lately. 
So could last month's bottom be the real deal? Let's take a closer look with Gary Steele, the new president and CEO of Splunk. Gary, welcome back to Mid Money. It's great to be here. It's great to see you in person. Too. Yeah, absolutely. All right, I'm going to just say it. I know you as a moneymaker. You told me a long time ago, you were on for Proofpoint many, many times. What are the similarities of, of Splunk and the differences, and how are you trying to remake Splunk? Because you were successful doing cybersecurity at Proofpoint. Yeah, the, one of the great similarities is the customers that are being served. So Splunk has an amazing list of Fortune 500 customers. Second is solving the cyber problems in this day and age, super important. And Splunk basically is the underpinning for all of those cyber teams, making it more critical than ever. So I think those are really great elements. And the thing I'm excited about is to bring a different point of view, potentially, to what the financials look like. Splunk is, I think Splunk has incredible opportunities for long-term durable growth, but I think we can also improve our profitability over time Okay, and no, create some balance there. Right, well, Doug Merritt, and I know he left the company, but he was on multiple times, uh, traced out a vision where you had to go to a different model, uh, and he was not able to complete the model when we were there. Are you there now, and is it more lucrative than the way it used to be run? I think the transition, we're, we're vastly through the transition. And that transition is simple. We went from an on-premise environment to a cloud environment. And with that, we changed our um, revenue model from being a perpetual license model to being subscription. So that's a normal transition. And that, yeah, can, but that but confused some people. it's predictable and lovable. You know that's you how just we gotta, do. And you just have to get to the other side, which is we're vastly there. And so if you look at the business today, um, in the most recent quarter, 57% of our business was cloud. Okay. And so we're, we're really yeah. getting through that process, and it really shows up in the strength in the financials today. Okay. Now, uh, here's a phrase that I need to understand. Observability becomes essential. What does that mean if you're a shareholder of Splunk? How is that going to help, help the company? You know, it's really interesting. Observability is a category of infrastructure where you give insights and visibility to what your applications are doing. And one of the things we found is that if an application go da- goes down that's serving a customer, you immediately need to know, is that a security event or did the application fail? And so you need to be able to respond quickly and either bring the application up or respond to a security event. And these markets have really converged. And so what we've seen is while our strength started in security, right. we're really st- extending that strength, helping organizations run mission-critical applications that ultimately drive resilience in the business. Now, uh, there are other companies in that. And Definitely. I have to believe that, let's say, Microsoft, which we used to talk about all the time when you are proof did. Point, that did. Microsoft can say, you know what? I want to do exactly what these guys do. I can wipe out Splunk. It doesn't happen, though. No, Splunk has some incredibly important differentiators, technically. And some of those just mean that you can get access to data wherever it resides to make business-critical decisions. You can see across your entire environment with visibility. And you can make sure that all those applications are staying up and running and serving your customers. Now, we were talking earlier uh, with with Dara from Uber. uh, And one of the things that I found interesting was that he talked about how the goalposts have changed. I mean, even in the time since you've taken over Splunk, mm-hmm. we now want we have the, we want you to make money now. But before we wanted you to land, expand, take business. I mean, what do you do? I mean, you were fortunate enough in that you had this gap year, basically. But it, this new bit, this new way of running a company, is not necessarily a way to make the company the best. No, but I think I've always believed in a balanced approach. Okay. And I think Splunk has a unique opportunity with long-term durable growth because of the value that we're delivering to customers to combine that with increasing cash flows and operating margins over time. And I think that balance, I think it 
has value in good times and bad times and whatever's in favor. I think that balanced approach is really important. Okay, can you give us a little preview about .conf 22? Because I believe that there's going to be thousands of, of Splunk customers there, and I want to know what they might be hearing. You bet. So we're headed to .conf. That is our annual user conference. I'm super excited to be there to spend time with all of our customers and all the passion that they have around Splunk and all of our Splunkers who are Splunk employees. So super excited about that. We've got some exciting product announcements, some great um, partner announcements. And yeah, really good. Really good. And I think it just speaks to the momentum that the business has right now. So super excited to be participating in that. Is this uh, the first time everyone's getting together? Since the pandemic. So we'll have over 5,000 people in person, and then we're going to be streaming live to more than 10,000. So the numbers are big. Uh, We learned how to live in the pandemic. We did. Uh, Do we like the new world where we're back? I think we like the new world where we're back. I'm excited to be back. Okay, because a lot of people say, you know, I miss the old word of he's making me come back to work five days a week, but you're not, right? You're not. We're allowing our employees flexibility because I think we've all learned to work differently, and we're embracing that. Excellent. I knew you were. Awesome. Once again, thank you for all the money you made for shareholders. You just came in again over and over again, no matter what, and it was just really great, great investment. Thank you so much. Thank you. That's Gary Steele. the new president and CEO of Splunk, a stock we've liked a lot. But remember, when we talk about Gary... We talk about all the money we made in Proofpoint. Mad Money's back after the break. Thank you so much. Stick around. May I make a suggestion? I would stay with Kramer. The Lightning Round is coming up next. <laughs> it is time. It's time for the Lightning Round. We're going to let's see And then the Lightning Round's over. Are you ready? Keep that. It's time the Lightning Round. We're start with Ryan, Illinois. Ryan. Jim, how's it going? Couldn't be better. How about you, Ryan? Good. Hey, I'm wondering about this company that I love for years, if it's the next big fast food chain. Started in my home state of Illinois in 1963, became publicly traded in October of last year. They're expanding outside of the Midwest. Amazing food. The place is always packed. The company is Portillo's, P-T-L-O. Okay, look, I absolutely know the story, and the story is a great one. That is a terrible business right now. We're going to have to save that one for later and lower. Tony in Ohio. Tony. Hi, Jim. I'm in Cincinnati. Oh. Holy cow. That is, I'll tell Sarah. Sarah eyes, and she's, I think she worked lived there at some point. Let's go. Okay, this is, uh, you get a great investor when you buy this stock. It's 52-week high, was $362. It closed today at $300.80. BRKB. Do you know that I've been recommending that stock ever since the week that the show began, and it's been right the whole way, and I reiterate that Berkshire Hathaway is for me. Lou in Florida, Lou! How you doing tonight, Jim? Thanks for taking my call. Oh, you're welcome. I've been trying a few days. You're harder to reach than the White House. <laughs> well, you know, I hang up on a lot of people. Too. No, those are just those ones. They want to get my some warranty or something. Will you tell them to stop calling me? What's up? <laughs> That's hysterical. Listen, um, I've been holding on to Anheuser-Busch for quite a while, and it's been going south since I bought it. I know the market's not real good now, but uh, did people stop drinking beer? Do you no, actually, that? the numbers I mean, go the up in beer. I've done a lot of work on this. It's actually the right thing, but I do prefer Constellation. They are a share taker from Anheuser-Busch, but you are dead right. Beer sales go up. I've studied this for about uh, literally about 60 years, and you're right to stick with that idea. 
Let's go to Richard in Georgia. Richard! Jimmy Chill, booyah, from Atlanta, home of the world champion, Atlanta Braves. True, very true. I let someone down the other day ask me about what do you think about Atlanta. I, did, I left the Braves out. I was talking about the Falcons. My mistake. What's up? <laughs> hey, focusing on energy and yields, I've got a company that operates about uh, 50,000 miles of natural gas, natural gas liquid, crude oil, and other petrochemical pipelines. They have a 6.5% yield and in the first quarter generated record distributable cash flow of about $1.8 billion, which provided almost twice the coverage of its quarterly di- uh, distribution. That stock is Enterprise Products Partners. I love that company. I love that company. I think it's an amazing company. I wish they'd come on air. They are so well run. It is terrific. C- continue to buy that one. Buy a lot of it. Let's go to Steve in New Jersey. Steve. Hey, Jim. How are you doing tonight? I am doing well, Steve. How about you? Okay, um, here's what I have. The company I'm calling about should do well in the coming months. Also, two directors recently made large buys. Can you tell me your opinion of Six Flags Entertainment? We are in an unusual time where I just feel that if you get bad weather like we had for Scott's Miracle Grove for a month, you're going to end up getting hurt. So I'm going to have to say no to Six Flags. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Coming up, a whole new meaning to the term left coast. Kramer takes on the impact of an upcoming Golden State exile. Next. for the rest of the country. We're about to experience a California diaspora, the likes of which we haven't seen since the dot-com bomb went off. Might be even bigger. That's right, companies are making plans to leave the region, or at least putting up new facilities in what seems like anywhere about a 60-mile circumference around San Francisco. It's the reverse of the Grapes of Wrath, a backwards dust bowl, and it's going to play off in all sorts of different ways that nobody's thinking about. Now, you might think all I do when I'm out here is interview a bunch of executives, then head back to the hotel room for a couple hours of sleep for the next show. No. What I really love out here in San Francisco and what I miss terribly during the pandemic is the ability to pull up with some of the biggest and the best, not on the air, but off the air and really find out what's going on. Let me tell you what they're talking about. First, I never thought I'd hear this again, but there will be a round of layoffs in Silicon Valley that could rival the post-dot-com layoffs in 2001. Yes, business for many of these companies is weak, not just freeze week, but fire week. Just today, we learned that Citrix letting go 15% of its salaried employees. Do you know that company is a company that used to pride itself on profitability? It's happening to every tech company that's involved with the consumer, every enterprise software play where the end markets are softer. So brace yourself for the inevitable. After years where smaller tech companies only worried about revenue growth, there's now a definitive sense that unless a business starts making money, I mean real, non-adjusted, free cash flow, then their stocks will collapse and it'll be difficult to attract new talent. Remember, the industry loves to pay people with stock options, but that's not an enticing form of compensation when the stocks keep getting pulverized. Winning companies, losing stocks. 
Second, many of the CEOs out here have had it with younger workers who are telling them what to do, when and where they want to work. They're tired of the San Francisco workforce, which they think is full of spoiled nitwits who are there one day and gone the next to make even more money. So they're moving to areas of the country where they can hire talented people for way less money. People who have more loyalty to the business and accountability to the CEO, if only because they'll have fewer options to jump ship. Now, some of these moves are big. Pat Gelsinger, CEO of Intel, trying to create a silicon heartland in Ohio, and it's beginning to bear fruit. He'll soon break ground for a semiconductor manufacturing complex, something we've long neglected in this country. He's harnessing all of the great schools in the area to focus on computer engineering, computer science, study of semiconductors. Coalition of public and private collaborators is like nothing I've ever seen. If Washington can get its act together and pass the CHIPS Act, which would give the chip makers more than $50 billion to build the infrastructure we need to bring key semiconductor manufacturing back to the U.S., then Intel will have all the help it needs and then some. Ohio will become the new hub of tech. Finally, after the success of work from home, some CEOs are moving their headquarters to cheaper environments simply because it doesn't make sense to pay up for office space in this San Francisco metro area when people can work remotely. I heard Atlanta mentioned several times. Austin is always in the mix, and of course, Florida. Why bother to be in the most expensive state in the country where you can be in one of the cheapest? So, you now have it early. The tech exodus from California is coming. And with it, lower expense structure, and perhaps, and this is Jimmy old school chill speaking, some gratitude. Some gratitude for having a job at all. I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to try to find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Kramer. See you tomorrow. The news with Shepard Smith starts now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.